This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning, family. This morning's scripture is 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, page 1018 in the Pew Bibles. And you feel free to stand, to sit, to kneel, and honor the Lord's word. Second Peter, chapter 1. Verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. All right. Glad you're here this morning, especially if you're new with us. I'm really glad you're with us this morning. My name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. <clears throat> Father, you didn't leave us in the dark. Like when I hear this passage, what comes to mind is that we are not in the dark. We're not, we're not 
made unaware, like you spoke a word. You spoke a word at creation and brought light and brought everything we see. You spoke a word through Jesus coming. Jesus came as the word. You spoke a word and we have your word written before us. We have your heart written in pages before us. Like you haven't been silent. You haven't, you haven't concealed, you've revealed. So God, I pray this morning that we wouldn't be nearsighted. I pray that we wouldn't be blind. We, we don't have to, like you, you didn't regulate us to searching in the darkness, trying to find our way. You didn't leave us in the places where we're left to our own understanding, our own devices, our own power and imagination or impulses or experiences. You speak, or you spoke and you speak. So spirit of the living God who inspired your word, would you speak to us now? Spirit of the living God, would you confirm, would you testify to our hearts that you, um, that you, uh, that you are who you are and that you are returning again. You are coming to your own again and that we can find hope and real confident, um, like established rooted faith in. God, would you speak to us this morning through your word? I pray in your name, amen. Okay, so tomorrow morning you get a call from the doctor and the labs are in and you have a month left to live what do you devote the rest of your life to? Peter answered that question here. Peter answers, I'm going to devote the rest of my life, my short life, aiming to stir you up to holy living by reminding you of what rock-solid, sure-footed promises you have in Jesus. Today, he wants to remind us of our confidence in Jesus's return. Peter wants to further establish us in the memory of Jesus's promises so that we'll continue um, putting our hope in them. And if we do that, if we're diligent to grow in godliness, that we'll continue to grow in holiness Uh, despite any opposition that comes our way. He wants to remind us of our sure found hope in Christ so that we'll continue following him so it will grow in holiness and we won't be knocked off track from the bumps that surely come our way in our lives. And he says in verse 12 that the things that he's writing here, we already know. Right, his, his readers already know these things. His readers already know them. They're already established in the truth. But Peter's preparing to die, he tells us. He's preparing to die. He says that the Lord made it known to him that his death isn't far away. And of course the Lord knows when his death is going to come. He's in control of Peter's life. He's in control of my life. He's in control of your life. And he could have rescued Peter here, right? He's already done it once before. He's already rescued Peter from prison with an angel in Acts 12, 6. But here Peter knows that He's going to die. He's actually going to be left in prison in Rome and he's going to be crucified, in fact. He's going to be crucified upside down. This brutal, unbelievably brutal physical persecution for preaching the gospel at the hand of Nero. But Peter's concerned about another kind of persecution in these churches. So he's putting ink to uh, paper because these churches are facing deception. And so in verse 15, he says that he's making every effort to recall the promises of God to them. 
Peter thinks that it's best for him to use his time writing down these things so they can read them over and over and over, be aroused and enlivened by this truth so they'll be further rooted and grounded in what's true. And when they're further established in this truth, they won't be knocked off course, right? Do you see what this means for us, Redeemer family? It means that if we consider ourselves established in the truth, then this word is for us. It's not just for beginners, okay? We need reminders. You need a reminder because you easily forget. You easily forget, and you see that in verse nine. Put your eyes on verse nine. Hey, I'm gonna be pointing to the Bible a lot. Why don't you go ahead and open that up? Second Peter chapter one, look at verse nine. We can easily become, it says, nearsighted and blind. Nearsighted and blind about what? About our former sins. See, we can minimize our salvation just by thinking that because we know these things that somehow we're all right. Somehow, like if we just know these things, we're gonna be okay. And we must get out of our heads this idea that our faith is like this somehow like mechanical thing, right? It's not enough to just know the right thing and check a box. It's not enough to just say the right prayer and move on, right? We actually show the genuineness of our faith by pursuing these reminders. That's what we looked at last week, verses five through seven. We actually are stirred to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and patience and godliness and brotherly affection, right? And love. And Peter's concern is that we can say we know God, we can think we're established in the faith, but if we're not pursuing these promises through holy living, that that leaves a door open for false teachers, it, it leaves a door for a people to be creeping into the church, promising us freedom where there isn't freedom. Promising us freedom, telling us that we don't need to be concerned about these types of things. They minimize these things. And we'll see next week that instead they lead us, chapter two, verse two, to sensuality. And uh, verse 10, spiritual bondage. But these false teachers seem to be spreading doubts about Peter and the other apostles. They're spreading rumors and slander and gossip about them. And they're saying things like the, the apostles are just on a power trip. They're just trying to control you. They're just trying to take you away from doing the things that you actually want to do. They're trying to uh, climb this uh, level of like control. They're trying to get you to live a certain way that isn't necessary. They're merely just feeding you myths. That's what they're saying. So Peter's whole exhortation here is ignore the false teachers. Ignore the false teachers and pursue the promises of God by living godly lives. Be holy, Peter says. Why though? Why is that so critical? Why is it so important? What's, what, that's where we're gonna be getting today. Why is it absolutely necessary that we heed Peter's word to be holy here? Because they need reminded, you need reminded, I need reminded that Jesus is returning. He's coming again. And the last will and testament of Peter exhorts us to live godly lives. Why? Because who wants to be found engaging in and doing unholy things when the Holy One returns. Do you want to be caught in that space? I don't want to be caught in that space. See, when Jesus returns again, he will destroy everything that stands against him. He will destroy our broken world and rebuild it. Our works will actually be exposed for what they truly, really are. 
And anyone who doesn't place their faith in him and pursue his ways are ungodly and they'll actually be judged before his holy throne. This is profound motivation for us to turn away from our sins, to turn from our, uh, how, like us living our lives however we see fit, for us to make every effort to pursue his promises, living a virtuous and godly life. Like that is insane motivation. And Peter wants to motivate us toward it. This is Peter's argument. But the false teachers are spreading doubts about him, that Jesus is gonna come again in some cataclysmic, apocalyptic day of the Lord. So what evidence is it that Jesus is coming again, that we should live holy lives? Now, in the court of law, there's basically two forms of evidence you can present, right? You can present uh, eyewitnesses, you can call witnesses, or you can submit documents. If you want to make your point in court, you better have one of those two. You better have eyewitnesses, and you better have compelling, trustworthy documents. Peter has both. Peter has both, and we're going to look at both. Uh, the eyewitness testimony in verses 16 through 18 and the authoritative documents, verses 19 through 20. So that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. So let's dive into the eyewitness testimony. Peter says, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we re uh, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, uh, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter says, I've already made this known to you. You already actually know this. I've already established this in you. So this is not a peripheral doctrine that's kind of like tacked on to the end for Peter. This isn't a side issue. Verse 16, he says, I've made this known to you, the power and the coming of Jesus. Jesus has all authority and all power and he's coming. We have to take this seriously. We actually have to take this earnestly, even joyfully, okay? There is, a, there is going to be a personal, visible return of Jesus Christ. There is going to be a personal and visible return of Jesus. This doctrine has been affirmed all throughout Christian church history. The second coming of Jesus is a primary issue of our faith. And so we should be confident in it. It should be a confidence in our heart and we should long for his return. But Peter goes on and begins to tell them that at the transfiguration, he saw the majesty of Jesus. He witnessed the majesty of Jesus personally. Any one person who saw this might like pass it off as like a hallucination, right? It's like, oh my gosh, what was that? I must have been hallucinating something. He may have passed it off as something that like, um, like some kind of wishful thinking of his heart. But Peter says, we saw it, right? Who went up on the mountain? He saw the same thing as James and John. Now, you get into like a fender bender, right? And you've got like five different stories of what happened. Everybody has their own version. They all saw something different. But here he says, all of our stories aligned. We all saw the same thing. We all heard the same thing. We all saw the same thing. We saw it personally. And you can read three different accounts of the transfiguration. Let me tell you where those are found. Matthew 17, verse one. I would encourage you to read these this afternoon. Matthew 17, one, Mark 9, 2. In Luke 9, 28, you can read about these accounts. And as I was preparing this week, I wondered, 
Oh, I wonder why Peter didn't use the resurrection here. Like, why didn't he give the eyewitness testimony? If he wants to show something pretty dazzling, why didn't he share about the resurrection, right? He witnessed that. Why didn't he share about Jesus' miracles, right? Like, that, that was a pretty powerful eyewitness testimony. What about Jesus' ascension? What, what's what's uh, striking is all of these stories have way more eyewitnesses, right? Way more people saw the resurrection and Jesus' miracles and his ascension than the transfiguration. This only had three people witness it. But none of these did Jesus appear in his majesty. It is the majesty and the greatness of his coming that Peter wants to remind us of. That's why he's sharing this. Clue in on this. Matthew 16, 28 says, this is the verse right before the story of the transfiguration. And Jesus tells his disciples, some of you will not taste death before you see the son of man coming into his kingdom. There's debate. Is that the second coming of Jesus? Is this Jesus talking about the transfiguration? Either case, Peter, James, and John would say, we saw it. We saw the son of man coming in his kingdom. We saw it once on a mountain. We saw the son of man in his full majesty. The heavens were ripped open. The transcendent glory and past, present, and future all rolled up into one moment. We saw Jesus and he shone like the sun. There were rays of light shining from his face. He was bright and heaven and earth seemed to merge for a moment as a voice came from heaven and said, this is my son, giving glory and honor to the son. We saw it. And Peter, in writing this letter, some 30, 30 years later, speaking about the transfiguration, his mind is filled with all of this real life events and he wants to motivate you he wants to motivate you with a story that you would strongly consider your life in light of Christ's return. He's trying to convince you that uh, of the certainty of Jesus' or his return and his power that will come with it. He will come again in his glory. He will come again in glorious, dreadful, amazing, wonderful, just fearful second coming. It will be all of those things. How does Peter know this? Because he's already seen this glorious, dreadful, amazing, wonderful, fearful appearing of Christ in the transfiguration. That's his point here. Now, we do have to address something that's actually really important that we shouldn't skip over, that we have to address about the language Peter uses in this argument. In telling us about the eyewitness testimony about the transfiguration, he makes it really clear that he does not follow cleverly devised myths. I don't follow myths. I don't care about myths. In other words, the reason Jesus' return is so weighty for us, the reason it matters for us is because it's based in historical eyewitness account, not myths. Not myths. To speak of this eyewitness testimony as a myth, apparently begun in the early church and it's all over the place today. It's all over the place today, specifically among liberal Bible scholars in many theologically liberal churches today. They'll say things like, hey, we're not saying this isn't true. They would say, hey, we're not saying this isn't true. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, this is true, but we're just saying that the facts given in Scripture aren't always believable. 
It could still be true, it's just not all the facts are actually, like, weren't actually done in the ways that it says. But the larger and deeper truth, like, there's real meaning there. Like, we can still draw out a deeper meaning of the text. And many, many today, many, many churches will say these sorts of things. They won't outright deny the scriptures, but they twist it. They twist it. The plagues and the splitting of the Red Sea didn't actually happen. I mean, really, like, how could it? How believable is that, right? They, how believable is this? But it's still a true story because the point of the story is that God has the power to set captives free. He can set us free, and that's the point. So trust God. Jesus may not have walked on the water, and certainly Peter didn't walk on the water in faith to, uh, to go out to Jesus. Like, that couldn't have happened. That was, a, that was a myth. However, the deeper truth of the story is you can do anything if you keep your eye on Jesus, if you put your faith in him. So keep your eyes on him and trust him. And that's the truer, better point of that story. Or the resurrection of Christ can be affirmed, but it wasn't a literal body resurrection, of course, right? Like, of course not. Like, we're not as primitive of them, as them. We're not as backwards thinking as them. We know better. We're more enlightened. We're more scientific, right? I mean, side note, as long as it's a, the science agrees with our view, um, we're more scientific. We're more enlightened. We're beyond that. The resurrection of Christ is a powerful story, a powerful myth that symbolizes and pictures a God that gives us a new spiritual life of gaining victory when it seems like he's defeated. That's the point of that story. When you argue this way, you begin to make truth something that's only in the eyes of the beholder. It's, it's up to you to do with it as you see. Uh, as you see. Like truth isn't fixed, Truth isn't something to pursue or obtain outside of yourself. It's rather something that each of us have to discover on our own terms. And we get, like, we get into these conversations with one another. It happens out there, but it can happen in here. It may happen in your small group. It may happen one-on-one -on -one where you're sharing your understanding of what you believe is true about Scripture. And somebody else is sharing their version. And it can seem like this really me, uh, meaningful, purposeful thing for us to each share our different views of what this means. And what we inevitably will often sometimes be tempted to do is take pieces of that that we think are helpful and leave behind the things that we don't find as helpful. And then we leave the conversation feeling more enlightened, more like I, we have the conversation say, hey, you don't necessarily have to agree with me. And I sure, certainly wouldn't expect, you know, you to agree, have to agree with me. And uh, I don't have to agree with you necessarily. And we can both leave taking what we find is helpful and we both feel better about it. But this is not what Peter's doing here. Peter is not offering up a personal perspective about the coming of Jesus for you to pick and choose what fits best with your modern enlightened view. Peter would say, I do actually claim that you need to accept my understanding. I actually believe you need to accept my understanding of what's going on here because it's not actually my understanding. It's not my understanding. I was delivered this from the Lord himself. I'm just delivering the mail. I'm just delivering the mail. This isn't my understanding. I'm convinced of this because the Lord gave it to me. And man, that is our intention. That is our heart. That is our desire. Each and every week when we preach from this pulpit, I'm not, I don't want to share my ideas or my perspectives or my opinions. This pulpit is not meant for us to give you our, like our um, whim of the week or uh, best tricks on how you can do X, Y, and Z. Our desire from this pulpit is just to deliver the mail. If you have a problem with what we say, 
We're just aiming to deliver the melts. That's our desire. And Paul warns in 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Man, God, would you keep us in sound teaching? Would you keep us in sound teaching? We can easily drift to sharing our own understanding, but we want to share your understanding. But because the temptation is real to give to itching ears, Second Timothy says. They won't endure sound teaching, but have itchy ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off, there it is, into myths. We're drawn toward echo chambers, right? We want to hear for ourselves like things that just reaffirm our own opinion to begin with. No one wants to be proven wrong. So we go the path of least resistance and we're drawn toward teachers who suit our own passions. I don't think I can overstate this. I don't think. I don't think I can overstate this. The beliefs and doctrines of our church are not the result of clever headwork. Like we don't think they just sound good. We're not putting those in there because they sound good to us. They're not our impressions. They're not our experiences or stories invented to make some kind of moral point. Peter wants everyone to know that the story about Jesus is important because it is in the category of history. It actually happened. It's verifiable fact. Our doctrines are the result of historical observation and myth operates outside of that. It's the opposite of historical fact. And this is why Peter gets, um, he, he thinks that knowledge actually plays such a critical role here. Notice in verse two, put your eyes on verse two, chapter one. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Verse three, his divine power has been granted to us through knowledge. Make every effort to add to your virtue knowledge. Verse five, verse eight, if you have these things, you will not be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can also see him mention it in chapter two, verse 20, chapter three, verse 18. Why does that matter? because we're not following myths like other religions. Like the Greeks and the Romans had a lot of myths. When you learned them in high school, you didn't ask what were the historical evidences here, right? That wasn't the point of those. The point was to entertain or to draw some kind of moral understanding in order for you to make better sense of your life, right? Paganism flourishes in myths. Sex and cults flourish in ignorance. That's why it's taboo in them to ask questions. That's why only those on the inside know what's really going on in them. And I'm not saying that knowledge guarantees anything. I'm not even saying knowledge guarantees something. Knowledge doesn't equal godliness. But it does seem that ignorance to the things of God absolutely guarantees ungodliness. Peter says in verse three, that divine power that leads to godliness is given through the knowledge of God. And that's why Peter's eyewitness testimony here is so critical. It's important because the most significant and important claims of Christianity are historical claims. The virgin birth, the resurrection, Pentecost. These aren't tall tales. These aren't myths. These aren't fables for you to like sort out and find some moral like, like a thing to inhibit, inhabit. There's not a moral point there. 
It's on these historical claims that Christianity stands or falls. If our faith is not grounded in reliable observations of historical reality, then they are cleverly devised myths and they're unworthy of our acceptance. That's why Luke researched the things for Theophilus so he could have certainty, Luke 1.1. That's why John wrote about all the miracles of Jesus so they would understand them and actually believe in them, John 20.31. That's why all four of the gospel writers wanted to put ink to uh, paper because there's these rumors going around that Jesus's body was taken after the crucifixion. And they want the, everyone to know, no, this actually happened. Jesus actually resurrected. It was a historical fact. And Paul says, if this wasn't a historical fact and didn't happen, then Christianity is a sham and we're to be pitied. You see, it doesn't matter if you can draw more or lesson from it. If it didn't happen in history, then we have no hope. Peter is saying, look, I saw the transfiguration. It happened. It happened. I wasn't the only one who saw it. We all saw and heard the same things. I'm not making this up to scare you. I'm not making this up to get you in line in some way, like to, to enact control over you. This isn't a tall tale. We actually saw the glory of Jesus made manifest. We saw his majesty before our very eyes. We actually heard the voice of God himself audibly out loud. It wasn't a desire in our hearts. It wasn't an impression that we felt that we were discerning. It wasn't a vision in our souls. Listen, listen, if you would have been there yourself, you would have seen it. And because it really happened in history, then I'm sure he's going to return. It's going to happen. And if I saw his majesty then, now I know with what kind of power and what kind of glory, what kind of majesty he's going to be returning with. He's coming again. And like that, he's returning again in full majesty and glory. It will be joyful. It will be awesome. It will be powerful. It will be dreadful. He is coming. Our options here are limited, right? Like we can either accept Peter, James, and John, which has real implications for us, or we can say they somehow got together, shared the same story, and went with a, a story, and we're willing to die for it. Those are our limited options. Now let's look at the authoritative documents. Verse 19, look at verse 19. He says, not only do I have eyewitness testimony, there's something even more sure, authoritative documents. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain that day, whatever they saw, it was only more fully confirmed by the prophetic word that had already made this sure and clear. So here's three truths about the nature of scripture. The first one is the Bible is the word of God. It is the word of God. Now that may sound like a repetition to you, like almost like I said the same thing two different times, but it highlights and makes clear something that's really, really important. There are influential preachers in many, many, many churches that are hesitant to say that the Bible is the word of God. They would say things like the Bible contains the word of God, or they would say something like it becomes the word of God, or they would say when God speaks to us through the Bible at that moment, it's the word of God. And there's this like there's this like effort to distance ourselves from the claims of inspiration from the actual words in the Bible. But here we see Peter refer to prophecy three times. Verse 19, he names it again in verse 20, names it again in verse 21. But he isn't referring only to the prophets here. He's actually referring to the whole 
Old Testament. Like oftentimes they would use shorthand to talk about the entire Old Testament, right? Like the law and the prophets, you've heard that. It wasn't just the law and the prophets. They were saying the whole Old Testament scriptures here. I mean, they could just say law or just prophecy, but here he actually argues in this verse 19 that he's saying that the prophetic word about Jesus's second coming in the Old Testament makes us more sure about his experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why? Look at verse 20. Because no prophecy of scripture comes from a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy written in the scriptures. So Paul's reminding us that these prophecies are, of course, written down with the rest of the scriptures. He's not saying that only the prophetic words are inspired. He's saying that we know the prophetic word is inspired because it is in the scriptures themselves. They are from God. These prophecies are received and included into the Old Testament scriptures. They were affirmed as scripture. I know Jew would say that one part of the Old Testament scriptures is more truer than the other. His point's basically the same as Paul's in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So none of the Old Testament scriptures came about by any impulse of a man. Now, what about the New Testament? What about the New Testament? The Christian church has always answered that question, yes. Yes, they are inspired words from God. Jesus said to his apostles in John 16, 12, John 16, 12, Jesus says, I have yet many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, right? Does that sound like Peter's saying, hey, the Holy Spirit carried this along. You remember from our passage and here you have Jesus promising that. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come. And then Paul even says about his apostolic teaching, 1 Corinthians 3, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2.12, he says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. And in 2 Corinthians, he says in chapter 13, three, my gospel was not from man, right? I did not receive my gospel from man, nor was I taught, I'm sorry, that's Galatians. 2 Corinthians 13, three says, he said that um, Christ spoke to him and that's how he is writing this letter to them. In Galatians 1.12, he said, I didn't receive my gospel from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul over and over and over affirms that his word, his letters are given to him by the spirit, not from his own understanding. And this really, 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 really matters because it means that the authority of God's word can actually be understood through your Bible, through the words, through the sentences, through the paragraphs of scripture. Now, think about this. Think about this. The God who created the universe in speaking a word in Genesis 1, why did he do that? so he could reveal himself to you, so that he could create humanity and reveal himself to them and that they would know him. That was the motivating factor for his creation that we would find joy in knowing him, right? He didn't start something and just leave it. He revealed himself to it. 
which is also what inspires him to write these words down. This God also inspired words to be written down so that he could reveal himself to us and be known by us. God made himself known through the written word in your Bible in human language with grammar, with genres, and all these sorts of things for you to study them and read them because he wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to be known by you. And this takes me to my second point. All of truth is from God as men carried by the Holy Spirit. Men carried by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 20. Let me read verse 20 and 21 for us. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what we have here is the Bible is both a human book and a divine book. But this doesn't imply any fallibility, right? Like Jesus, we, we, we say that Jesus was fully man and fully God, but this doesn't mean that he had sinned, right? We can both affirm that he's fully man and fully God and also say that he's sinless. God did not simply reveal the truth to the writers of scripture and leave them hoping that they would somehow figure it out and get it right, right? He, he, was, he saw to the completion of it. That's, what it. that's what we're getting at here. Paul says that the writing of the Bible was carried by the Holy Spirit. Now this word carried here in verse 21. Here, look at that. Look at the word carried here. It's, that same word is translated earlier in verse 21 as produced. And in verses 17 and 18, that same word is translated born. So the spirit carried it and produced it and bore it. This gets at the idea that the spirit is carrying this to an assured outcome. This wasn't left to happenstance. This wasn't left up to men. The Holy Spirit carried the process to completion. And the implication here is that the Bible is without error. The, the Bible has to be without error. And there's lots of different places we could go to like draw out this point. There's lots of places we could spend a lot of time here. But I actually think this point is pretty simple to make at this point. We can make this point really simply by just saying, if the scriptures did not come from the will of man, but was carried and produced by God himself, then it must be true. But not just true, but it must be truth. Right, like if, if scripture comes from God, then it has to be absolutely truth because God himself is absolute truth. He's the definition of truth. Therefore, anything that were to come out of his mouth, anything that he were to inspire has to be capital T, truth, absolute reality, absolute truth, because of course, there is no error and deceit in God. This means that God's word always stands over our opinions. It has to. It always stands over our desires, I, meaning that it does not change each time you read it. The word of God doesn't change each time you read it. It doesn't change depending on who reads it. It doesn't change with our culture. It doesn't change because God doesn't change, and this is his word. Some people don't like that, what I just said. Like, there's a lot of people who don't like that. 
They don't like this idea of God's authority and truth being written down in propositions and statements that suggest a stable and fixed meaning. People do not want truth to be fixed. They want it to be more subjective. They want it to be more internal. They want it to be more experiential. But God's word is not like putty that you can mold according to your desires and according to your wants in the moment. The inspiration of scripture is an objective reality that is outside of us and is the product of the spirit of God himself carrying it out to his own divine intentions. His intentions, not ours. The spirit of the living God carried these words out to his intentions. That means there's only one meaning and it's his meaning. You don't, you don't get a say in the meaning. There aren't multiple meanings. There aren't different meanings depending on when you come to it, depending on how our world feels about it. It's his meaning, his divine intention. And this isn't to say that there's like no experience or subjective reality to reading scripture or internal reality in reading scripture. Of course, there ought to be. There should be. There absolutely should be. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, pay attention to the prophetic word. Why? Because the whole point, the goal, the aim of immersing ourselves in scripture is that it leads us from darkness and into light. It leads us from darkness and into light. It's not just information. It's not just things to categorize or to check boxes. It actually deals with life and death. It brings you from darkness to light. Look at verse 19. What does it say? as a lamp shining in a dark place, that you would love the light, that you would seek after the light, that you would be motivated by the light, that you'd be stirred up and aroused and pursue the light, that you would passionately pursue this with your life, that your insides would be stirred and motivated and passionate and desiring to obey Jesus until when? Until the day dawns and the morning star would rise in our hearts that Jesus, the bright and morning star would rise in our hearts as the thing that we most desire with our lives, that his word points to, that uh, aligns our hearts to, that, we would, that he would come back and see a people that are passionate and aligned with him. Jesus will return again. So what does this mean for us? What does this look like for us? Let me see if I can connect the rest of the chapter to the implications of this. And I'll do this real briefly and then we'll be done. Peter's main point in chapter one is to stir us toward holy living. Verse 13, then in verse, um, then in verse 10, in order for us to confirm our calling and election, he wants to, us to have an assurance of our salvation. You see that in verse 10. He does this by reminding us of that real saving faith verse one, is proved by whether we supplement our faith with virtue, that if we pursue uh, brotherly affection and patience, if we pursue self-control and all these sorts of things, right? But he also reminds us that we already have the power that we need to live this sorts of way, right? Like God has already given us everything we need in life and godliness. He's given us the power to pursue these things. And he's told us that the power becomes effective in our lives through God's great promises, Okay? So if we keep our hearts anchored in the promises of God, we're freed from sin and drawn on to righteous living, and then we'll be ready when Christ returns. So here's my question. Here's my question. Where are these promises found? 
Where are they found? How do you get these promises in you? How do you pursue these promises? Where do you go in order to fan the flame of your hope for Jesus's return? Hey, if you're in here this morning, do you need encouragement in your life? Like, are you facing darkness? Do you need encouragement that the the day of Jesus's real, uh, real return is actually going to dawn? Like, how many times do you just go through the motions of day to day and you lose sight that Jesus is coming again. You lose sight on the worries of this life. You get lose sight on the desires of the flesh. And we lose sight that Jesus is actually coming again. Do you need encouragement that it's worth it for you to pursue self-control? Do you need reminded that it's worth it for you to actually bear with one another's burdens and to give brotherly affection and love to one another? Man, I know I do. Like, do you need encouragement and reminder and see that it's worth it for you to like uh, be holy and godly to one another? If you need confirmation and affirmation and encouragement in these spaces, you gotta go to the scriptures. Do you need hope that pursuing these things will actually affirm you, that doing these things will actually affirm you and lead you to the day of standing guiltless before the majesty of Christ? If you need that, then you've got to submit and submerse yourself in the scriptures. Be disciplined to go daily. Go to them humbly and receive from God. Go to them to hear from God's words, to hear from God himself, because these are not mere words from men. These aren't just words from men. They're the very words of God. As the apostle Paul said in Romans 15, four, for whatever was written in former days, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures that we would find hope, that we would have hope there. Let me pray for us. Would you stand with me? Jesus, we come to you and to you alone this morning because you alone contain the words of life. You contain the words of life. Where else would we go? Where else do we go? We believe that you are who you say you are. You are the bright and morning star. Just as sure as the sun rises each day, Jesus, you are the bright and morning star that will rise just before the light of eternity. And so we love you and we honor you and we place our faith in you because you will come again. You will get everything that you want. You will get everything you want. And God, we want to be with you. We want to be like you. We're not interested in myths. We're not interested in neat stories with a nice moral ring to them. We're not interested in a story with spiritual possibilities. We wanna place our faith in something sure, something as sure as you're coming. So Jesus, we, we submit ourselves to you this morning. You, you love us. You moved toward us. We didn't look for you. We didn't move toward you. You saw us in our desperation, lived a perfect, sinless life, and sacrificed yourself so that we could be brought back to loving relationship with our Father. 
so that we can know you again. So the Spirit of the living God, Holy Spirit, that carries the Holy uh, Scriptures to completion. God, I pray that you would carry us to completion. Spirit of the living God, would you complete us in every good work? Show us the places where we've lulled asleep. As we read your word this week, would Spirit of the living God, would you lead us? Would you awaken us? We need correction. We need sober-mindedness. We need um, your loving and gentle redirection. Spirit of living God, would you have your way among us? Would you have your way among us? Complete this good work in us, God. Would you do that among us? And God, I also pray for those who haven't placed their faith in you this morning. That I pray that they would hear of your second coming and that you would awaken them to the seriousness of that. Like, would you let them see that for what it is that you are coming again to set all things right? And God, we just, we say like, would you make the reality of that awaken those who haven't placed their faith in you, that they would say, what must I do? We pray that in your name, amen.